Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So today on Battle Rhythm, we have Erin gibbs Bronshot. She is a faculty member at the University of Calgary and is now one of our regular co-hosts. It's her turn up, and because she works on policing and more security type stuff, I, we had a bunch of topics that really are in her wheelhouse this week. So welcome back to Battle Rhythm, Erin, uh, and thanks for joining us as, as one of our co-hosts. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be back again with you since we have such a busy week of news. Yeah, we thought we had a pretty straightforward week of news, and then stuff happened last night. Yes. <laughs> We're taping this on Tuesday, August 9th. Uh, last night, uh, Twitter went on fire thanks to uh, the raid on former President Donald Trump. Yes, I think, I don't know if people were not expecting this to happen, but I think when it happened was kind of the surprise. Well, it's the nice that it's the anniversary of Richard Nixon's resignation, so people are pointing that out, but I don't think that's what, what drove the timing of, of this thing. I, we don't really know what drove the specific timing of this, but all the legal beagles on on Twitter said, that this kind of warrant requires not just a suspicion that there was a crime that had been done, but that the documents would be there, that they, they whatever they were looking for would have to be present, that they had a reasonable suspicion or more than reasonable suspicion that they would find what they were looking for. So it might have been driven by the sensitivity of, well, they don't know if these, these documents could be there for much longer, or they may have just gotten news. Somebody might have just leaked out or they knew the documents were present or whatever it is that they were looking for. We're assuming it's documents. So what do you think is the big deal with classified documents? Because we all take our work home. <laughs> so why would he not be able to take some work home to Mar-a-Lago? Well, there's a couple of things. One is he's no, despite what he, what he says, he's not the president of the United States anymore. So they're no longer his documents. So he's no longer doing work, but it reminds me of 9-11 because on 9-11, 21 years ago, I was on the way to a meeting at the State Department from my fellowship at the Pentagon, and I was with two Army officers. And we were carrying documents that, so that way we could be able to refer to them in talking to our State Department equivalents. And then when the plane hit the Pentagon, and we wanted to get back to check on our buddies to make sure they were okay. But we also wanted to get rid of the documents they were holding. And I, I, I kind of half understood this, but the Army officers really understood this, which is, Taking documents home is a big deal because you don't have a secure facility. The phrase, the military, or actually government phrase is a SCIF, a secure compartmentalized information facility. I think mm. that's what, what SCIF stands for. My, my office in the Pentagon was a SCIF. The entire bill, the room was a SCIF because it had two different locks on it. And at the end of the day, the second lock would become engaged. It was a dial that I didn't know the combination for. And on 9-11, when we returned back to the office, we couldn't get return documents because the, the one army officer and I both were new, so we didn't have the combination memorized. And the, the second wallet, which was in his desk, so mm. we couldn't get back into our office. So we actually had to go to a different facility. And again, we're wandering around the building while the building was st still um, burning uh, because we were desperate to not want to bring these documents home because it's a serious thing. Uh, mm. David Petraeus, who might be on TV today talking about this, was 
basically prosecuted for bringing documents home. Ultimately, he ended up sharing those documents with a woman who was writing his uh, dissertation about him, essentially. Mm-hmm. Wapa happened to be his girlfriend. Wapa happened to be a grad student he was supervising. Mm-hmm. I tend to be as annoyed by the fact that he was having sex with a, a graduate student that he was supervising as much as he was taking classified documents home. But what he got yeah. prosecuted for was this taking classified documents home. You do not take documents away from a secure facility. And Mar-a-Lago is about as unsecure as you can get because you have all kinds of people traveling through what's not just his home, but a country club, including foreigners who might be working for the Chinese, the Russian government, the Iranian government. I mean, then, you know, for the entire Trump administration, there was no doubt that there was heaps and heaps of efforts by America's enemies, foreign and domestic to penetrate Mar-a-Lago so that way they could get access to Trump and get access to his information. Of course, the irony of this is that he ran for office saying we should lock up Hillary Clinton for her her being careless with classified information by having uh, stuff on a private server. Private servers have to be penetrated. You know, documents lying around Mar-a-Lago, I I think is actually just a wee bit easier. So that's (laughs) the big deal. It's 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 a crime. By just finding the documents, if they're there, that is a criminal act. They don't actually have to get into intent they don't mm-hmm. have to ask for testimony. They could just go to court and say, we found these documents at Mar-a-Lago. A crime was committed. It's his house. It's his documents. He committed this crime. Right. Mar-a-Lago has really been kind of a revolving door of people with money and countries that seem to want to gain access to at least the former president. The line that comes to me is from Star Wars when describing Mos Eisley. It is a hive of scum and villainy. I might be saying that because I had a hive in my house that was removed yesterday. Mm-hmm. We had a, yeah, the, the Mar-a-Lago is not a secure facility. He was not supposed to have classified documents. He's not the president of the United States anymore. So about that, the, the server and that sort of thing, it, it is kind of bizarre that in some ways he would not be sort of, not, I know you're supposed to trust the president, and but, you know, we have private servers so that documents stay in one place. So it seems odd to me, I guess maybe not considering the entire structure he had, but that you could actually physically take that much out of, out of the White House to <laughs> The number of 15 boxes was t- talked about, so. I know, it's not just stuffing a few papers into your briefcase, I guess, is it? I guess not. Uh, we'll know more about this as this unfolds. I'm sure this all will be discussed, not just in media, but in the courts. So we'll maybe come back to this in a, a future episode. Mm-hmm. But I felt we had to talk about it a little bit because it's just so bizarre. It is um, bizarre. Thinking about all the unfortunate jokes about the uh, plumbing and that sort of thing that are also happening. It is very topical. Yeah. And the, the challenge is that events like this may produce violence. That you already have not just random wackos, but the folks within the Republican Party saying that that the federal government forces within Florida must be confronted, that the civil war is on the way. And so I guess that leads to a conversation in Canada, mm-hmm. because what happens in the United States often happens here too. And mm-hmm. one of the things that happened in, in Canada is a report came out that we have had a lot more hate crime in the past year than before, a 27% increase compared to 2020 and a mm-hmm. 72% jump over the past two years. When yeah. you saw this report, well, how did, what did you think about this? So there are a number of issues that come to mind when you talk about hate crime. We do have the criminal code that specifies that there are certain behaviors that might be considered hate crime, but we have a huge amount of other types of incidents that would not fall into criminal code definitions. So when people talk about hate crime, I, you always kind of have to ask yourself, what exactly are they talking about? 
Are they talking about the incidents that come to police attention? And that's what we are talking about with respect to this new report. But there's so much that happens that is hate related that would never get to the police. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to, like my view is that we need to be looking at crime as one end of a sort of bad behavior continuum. And we would have a number of hate incidents along that continuum, criminal offenses being at one end. But there's this whole other realm and this other end of the continuum that isn't necessarily addressed in a, in a report like this. So what that means is that there's a lot more going on than what is just represented here. So this increase is probably not a big surprise because there's probably been a huge number of increases or a huge increase in hate incidents more generally. I guess the question is, is, do you think this is ramped up because of the pandemic itself and how lockdowns and disruption of social life caused this or because of the politicization of the pandemic, which is having more people on the edges, particularly the far right, using the pandemic to mobilize to try to, they've been more out, you know, the convoys and all the rest of it. Do you mm-hmm. think that there's more of a great permission structure or is it just that we live in very fraught, tense times so that has caused people just to act out more? Yeah, I, it's complicated. I think all of those factors actually come into play. You know, when you see changes in crime rates or levels of crime, and in mm-hmm. this case, reported crime, it could be due to any number of things. It could be the fact that we're all sensitized to bad behavior because we've had two and a half years or whatever to sit at home and think about what we're doing or not doing. And we also have police expertise changing. So we have probably more hate crime units today than we've ever had in the past. We certainly do. So when you have a hate crime unit, you're going to hear more about the types of crimes that that unit sort of is supposed to be addressing. So it could be heightened sensitivity. It could be police behaviors or police structures that are causing the increase. Or it could be that there really is just an increase in hate crimes and and people or hate incidents and people are um, feeling the impacts from COVID and and other strains. So I think it's a little, it's a mixture of everything. It's kind of hard to pinpoint in my mind what exactly the the sole cause would be. Mm -hmm. And I guess the next question is, is what should we be doing about this? There's a couple of of suggestions that people talk about. And one of them is that we actually should make hate crime incidents crimes in and of themselves. The way the criminal code works right now is you lay a charge and then you attempt to prove that that incident was hate motivated. Mm -hmm. So it's like the the hate crimes are added on to an existing charge. One of the things that has been suggested is that you should actually, or we could create crimes that would specifically address the hate involved in the crime. So for example, you have assault and you have, uh, so there's common assault, assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. So you could have, rather than something like assault with a weapon, you could have assault with hate. You know, have it sort of embedded into the structure. The criticism, though, by actually creating more offenses that specifically relate to hate is that you then might ignore the other sorts of incidents that are also hate-related because there is no crime associated with those. So again, you might have something like, well, mischief is probably not the best example, but maybe some sort of property damage. When you go to court, you're attempting to look at how hate may be implicated in that. But if there was a criminal code specification, then you would only look for the elements of that specific crime and not open yourself up to the possibility that hate can be associated with other types of crimes, if that makes sense. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that all this is very complicated. And, and one of the challenges of, of winning in court is you got to convince 12, 13 people of the same thing. And if you pile on the accusations that count, unless they sort of go along naturally, you end up confusing juries, you end up confusing the people who are watching. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to me that you, you don't add, you know, and then people on some of the things that, that have been going on. So we mm-hmm. end up not really taking seriously some of those. It means we're focusing on some things and not others. And that's always a challenge. How do you, how do you manage to? to mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things that I think people should also be keeping in mind when you look at these reported incidents is this is only the beginning of the crime funnel. <laughs> You've probably heard of the crime funnel, but it's this idea You have all these unreported crimes that are existing out there. Some of the crimes get reported to the police, some don't. Some get arrests applied to them, and then some go to the courts and actually result in a conviction. So when we're talking about police-reported hate crimes, we're way up the funnel. So meaning at the top, not the, the skinny end of the funnel. And it would be interesting to take a look at the charges laid in hate hate crime related incidents mm-hmm. and how many convictions we actually see. I know it'll be very low because it's very difficult to prove hate in a court. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a bit of a problem. But just also with that, you know, the um, we're focusing on police reported hate crime, but a lot of agencies could potentially and do deal with hate crime incidents or hate incidents. So we're also looking at what the police are sort of reporting here when there's other agencies that also record it but other agencies that also could be part of the solution. So the police, I think, are probably just one one element in attempting to deal with hate hate incidents, but there's other ways that we could potentially get other agencies involved. And I always wonder about how, whether the police are the right ones to be handling a lot of this stuff in the first place. Because That's exactly it. I don't, you know, they we call the police for everything, which I think we've been socialized to do. And, and many in many instances, that might be the effective thing to do. But there are other resources and other avenues that we could potentially think of that would be better positioned to address some of these these incidents. Well, and Rage in the, at the Machine was here last week in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and one of the songs they were singing was very much about how the uh, police might be part of the hate crime problem. Yeah, yeah, that, that is definitely a criticism of the police. Well, I guess one way to think about how to deal with, I mean, there's lots of ways to deal with crime but one way is to make it less severe so we can't get people to like each other no but but one thing we could do is make them less deadly so the other story that's been the past couple weeks in the crime uh, area has been the gun issue of banning handguns or Mm -hmm. banning the import of handguns so it is strange to live in a country where the prime minister can just decide to change the gun control situation because I spent, you know, grew up in the United States where we've seen how hard it is to do this stuff. So what do you think of Trudeau's proposals to reduce, you know, stop the import of handguns and otherwise to make it hard to, for people to get guns? I think, uh, you know, I'm sure he's going to be called out for expediting this, but it still is difficult for me to imagine why we need handguns. It's just you know, so I know that the criticism of these sorts of uh, methods or measures is that they impact the legal gun owners or those who actually own their firearms legally. But I think that it does make sense to limit the amount of handguns 
in circulation. Although, again, I, I'm a little bit torn on this issue because according to most policing agencies and the data that we have, the handguns that are involved in crime are coming across from the U.S. So whether stopping the legal sale of handguns is really going to be all that effective is a good question. But they, if the end result is to to reduce the amount of guns out there, I personally see that as a, as a good thing. But I'm not a handgun owner who has, you know, I'd like to, I haven't really engaged in a good discussion with handgun owners on this, but I'm sort of gathering what I can from the media and that sort of thing. But I, I do think they have a legitimate point about, um, about this being sort of directed at them and not necessarily the criminal element. Yeah, I see your point that law-abiding gun owners, but I can't help but think about how many law-abiding gun owners end up leaving their guns around for kids to, to use that, that are the targets themselves of theft. I'm yeah. not really sure how much security guns out there in the world produce the security for people, mm -hmm. how much they do harm. So I've always been more of a supporter of strict gun laws. And I do think one of the differences between Canada and the United States in terms of the level of gun violence is that we don't have access to AR-15s that easily. In yeah. this country, we still have people who are pretty crazy and are willing to shoot people, but mm -hmm. we don't have the same level of mass violence. We've had incidents yeah. more than we would like, but less than what the Americans have. Um, well, one of the best gun control measures might be for Canada is for the U.S. to get their situation under control. Because <laughs> you know, really, if, if Trudeau wanted to make a really big stand, he could you know, start uh, talking to them about that. But of course, that's a, a long and heated, has a long and heated history. So that's probably not going to work. But really, if most of the guns are coming across the border from the U.S. that are used in illegal activity here, that's sort of the uh, sort of one of the sources of the problems. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how the Americans react to this because uh, obviously you have firms in the United States are going to lobby the American government to to push for the Canadians not to do this because it's the kind of their business. Mm -hmm. And I can't help, you know, I just crossed the border recently, and of course, what the Canadian border service people care most about is you know bringing handguns, you know, bringing guns of any kind across. Apparently, they they constantly are finding guns, you know, when Americans forget. Oh yeah, I have a gun in my my trunk. I know. It's weird. We just don't think that way here, do we? Like to actually, the idea of carrying a gun, I think for all of us, legal owners, obviously as well, we just, this is, we can't transport guns in the same way that they can in the U.S. Yeah, it's a wacky, wacky country. <laughs> so I guess we'll leave that there. And our third topic for the week is prisoner exchange. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded of this last night because some people were suggesting that we exchange Donald Trump for Brittany Griner. Would they take him, though? I don't know. I mean, the United States has been experiencing some of the Canada experience for a couple of years. We had the two Michaels. They have the one Brittany. Mm -hmm. uh, and the topic lately has been now that uh, Brittany Griner, the WNBA basketball player who's been held for drug charges in Russia. She has now been convicted and sentenced to nine years, but many people are suspecting that this is part of a bargaining strategy, that the Russians want to get somebody back. And the person that they've been thinking about... Victor Bout, isn't it? Victor okay. Bout is a name who is a convicted worker uh, for 25 years, so trading nine years for 25 years. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Paul Whelan, who's another has held. So there is some discussion that there might be a trade in the works. Department of Justice is opposed to the trade, but they oppose 
prisoner trades in general because they think that justice requires them to keep the people they got. What's your take on this potential situation? I think it's a little bit wacky when you look at some of the specifics of this story. So Griner was detained for traces of hash oil in vapes. So in vape um, cartridges, I guess it is, as far as I can tell from what I was reading. So, and the, the consequence of that was that it's less than one gram. So her claim that it was a mistake does ring true because if you were actually thinking of, of trafficking or selling, you know, trace amounts in um, vape cartridges is not really the way to go about this. I would think if you're in it for the money or something else. Mm. So that's a bit wacky. And the other thing that is strange with this story, but maybe not considering this trade idea, is the fact that we apparently, or it was not known that she was had been detained until after the invasion of Ukraine. So it, it does suggest that there's a lot more going on than just this, the trace amounts of hash in her vape cartridges. As well, I've been reading that the average time for this type of crime is about five years and a third of those who are charged and convicted get, a third of those get parole. So she's definitely being over-sentenced for a crime that is very minor compared to the uh, this convicted arms trafficker with whom they, there is this suspicion that there will be a swap. It doesn't make sense, really. It is definitely political. We were accused of playing politics with the Huawei situation. Mm-hmm. But we followed procedures pretty strictly, and the executive got to, you know, hang out, I think, in home arrest, so she wasn't living in, in squalor, whereas mm-hmm. Reiner has been living in Russian prisons, which is not a pleasant place to be. And bargains like this, trades like this happen. You know, we've been swapping spies with the Russians on off for years. Mm-hmm. So it's not unheard of. It's a very interesting line between hostage taking and being held to account for a, a minor crime. It seems that uh, a hostage is sort of um, a more accurate description of this. Well, yeah, you put it rightly, which is, you know, for a very minor carrying a slight bit of oil, whatever it is. Cannabis oil. Cannabis oil. It tells you how, how familiar I am with uh, <laughs> all CBD, THC products, uh, I have very minimal experience. It just goes to show, you know, given how mild the offense was and how, how she's been treated, that and she's been a tool of, of the international policy of, of, of the Russians. That they are using whatever leverage they can to make things difficult for everybody else. I've long been referring to Putin and, and his regime as the trolls of international relations because they are just trying to trigger other countries to antagonize them, to be obnoxious. And mm-hmm. this is part of it. It's absolutely part of it. It's sad. It's bad for her. She should have been more aware and not brought the stuff to Russia as part of this. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, this is going to decimate the Russian basketball scene. Russian, the Russians have had a, been a very vibrant league for women's basketball. It's been a place that women can go since they get paid less mm-hmm. than their NBA equivalents. They've often played around the year, playing in, in WNBA in North America and then going off to Russia to play there. My guess is you're not going to see too many of these women play in Russia anymore because they don't want to be held hostage to the vagaries of international relations. Well, exactly. And the, um, it's not like she was, obviously, as you're saying, she was a known entity, had been through many uh, border security sort of episodes, I guess, in terms of her playing in Russia. So it seems, well, it's just totally, it's overshot the mark in terms of what the, the offense was. One of the other things, too, is that she's been a what you would call a perfect prisoner or a perfect offender in that she's admitted guilt 
that's usually the first step to a lower sentence. So this idea that she would get nine years for this, this amount when she has done everything they've asked her and, you know, played by the rules that they're setting out, it's not good. She is being used as a pawn. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now that they've gone through the, the farce that is Russian justice, uh, they can go through the trade and get it done. But it can't happen soon enough for her, and it can't happen soon enough for Whalen as well. Yeah. Uh, I worry about the, uh, you know, the references to penal colony is, is strange to us in North America, but it just has a sort of shrouded in darkness, isn't it? You don't really know. And if she gets lost into that system, because there is obviously degrees of labor involved in these penal colonies, but I think it could be anything from sort of benign activities to pretty awful and harsh conditions. So it's lucky, I think, that she does at least have the the persona and the celebrity factor associated with her so that she's got lawyers both in Russia and in the U.S. still working on this. But it does seem like a scary prospect to be sent to a Russian penal colony. Yeah, that's a scary prospect indeed. The good news is you're not being sent to Russia. You're being sent to Ottawa. We'll be seeing you next week at yes. the Summer Institute. What are you going to be talking about next week? Well, we are going to be talking, we're actually on the last day, this is Rosalind Warner and Andy Knight, and I are going to be talking on the last day about sort of expanding the notion of security. And both Andy and Rosalind are health security experts. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and and how some of the, obviously the pandemic has figured in strongly to the ways in which we might perceive security. So we're going to be taking a little bit of a, more intense look at that or more scrutinizing that whole idea of health security. Well, that's great because uh, what's not what's great about having you on, on the podcast as, as one of our regular co-hosts now is that we now spend more time talking about sort of security broadly defined as opposed to defense narrowly defined. So we talked today about hate crimes and guns and prison swaps, and none of those are sort of fit into sort of traditional defense security stuff. So we're, mm -hmm. we're definitely expanding. But as we've seen from the pandemic and from dynamics going on in the United States and elsewhere, what threatens us the most is probably not bombs or rockets from other countries and more the people who we live with and the diseases that we're exposed to and the politicization of, of yeah. vaccines and all that craziness. I think that's true. I think that we are most aware of sort of the local issues and the things that immediately impact us. And the pandemic was certainly one of those. We all felt the effects of quarantines and shutting down and that kind of thing. But it, it really does have implications for national security and personal and national. So it's it's uh, very relevant to a lot of different arenas of security. Well, I look forward to seeing you next week. The joy of this summer institute is in person. Our last summer institute was not in person. And we're using that as an excuse to bring a lot of people together. So I'm looking forward to for your presentation and also seeing you at our big reception next week. So have yeah. a good week and good luck with the airlines getting you to Ottawa. Thank you. Yes, I'll, I'll get to the airport early. Thank you, Steve. Today we're talking with Ali Wine of the Eurasia Group. He has a brand spanking new book out there called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalize U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet Challenges of Strategic Competition. Everybody's been talking about great power competition these days. Ali was a member of our first cohort of capstone scholars where he started talking about this stuff. And he turned around a book in basically two or three years, which is a pace of operations that we academics just don't understand. So Ali, welcome to the Battle Rhythm. Congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much for having me. And we were just talking a few minutes 
before recording that it's particularly gratifying to be talking to you because that caption was one of the very first times when I moved beyond putting pen to paper and actually articulated some initial, I shouldn't say hypotheses, but some initial ruminations on, on great power competition, both as a descriptive construct and as a prescriptive framework. And many of those initial you know, formulations, obviously I, I revised them in the interregnum, but they did go on to inform the book. So, so you gave me a very important platform very early on in the nascent stages of writing the book. So now that the book is out, to be able to come full circle and talk with you is very gratifying for me. So what's the book about? Obviously, it's about the United States dealing with great power competition. But what is your big claim and argument that you're trying to make in the book? So I guess I'll begin with a distinction that I, I kind of alluded to just a minute ago. So the book sets forth a critique of great power competition as a prescriptive framework, while recognizing that obviously descriptively it captures or distills a very important set of dynamics that inform contemporary geopolitics. And so descriptively, I think few, if any, observers, certainly not myself, a very few individuals would disagree that the United States relatively is not as influential as it was say, at the end of the Cold War or even at the turn of the century. And few observers, I think, would dispute that America's principal nation-state competitors, China and Russia, that today they're more able and more willing to push back against U.S. influence, uh, challenge certain aspects of the, the post-war or U.S.-led post-war order. So descriptively, I think great power competition distills some very important dynamics in contemporary geopolitics. I worry about great power competition more prescriptively. And so what I try to do in the book, I think two main objectives. One, my first objective is to, to advance that critique, and, and we can discuss that critique. But the second objective I have with the book is to suggest that in this moment of crisis, or rather I should say in this moment of this confluence of crises that we're facing. So an uptick in cross-strait tensions, this grinding war of attrition in Eastern Europe, and now if it seems that the Iran nuclear deal is not going to be resuscitated with potential for a crisis in the Middle East, I want to suggest that there is a great power opportunity for the United States to, to articulate and pursue a foreign policy that, while being mindful of what China and Russia are doing, while competing selectively with China and Russia, to pursue a foreign policy that's more affirmative and more proactive in nature rather than defensive and reactive, and that isn't ultimately predicated upon responding to the decisions of its competitors. It's not tethered to the decisions of its competitors. And I think that if the United States can articulate and pursue a foreign policy that's grounded more in renewing its unique competitive advantages at home and abroad rather than just narrowly anticipating what are China and Russia going to do and now let's respond, I think that that foreign policy will be more sustainable, it will be more confident, um, and I think it will send an important signal to allies and partners who are concerned about some of the vagaries of our domestic politics, some of the oscillations in U.S. foreign policy. I think it will send a signal to our allies and partners that the United States is confident in its regenerative capacity and in its ability to compete over the long haul. Well, there's a lot packed into that, and I was just sort of smiling as you are talking about the vagaries of American domestic politics, where I'm trying to read. My, my neighbors here in Canada are asking me for reassurance about the future of American politics. I, I, I can't give it to them. So what are America's comparative advantages, given that it's undergoing its own various crises? If you'll indulge me, I'll get to enumerating some of America's, what I think are some of America's competitive advantages. But I do want to begin just on the other side of the ledger, lest I portray myself as being Pollyanna-ish. There are some very serious challenges. And I think I worry honestly more about, I worry more about America's internal challenges than about its external challenges. But external Externally. So externally, as I said, we're not in 1991. Uh, we're not in 1992. So today's geopolitical environment is obviously not as conducive to America's strategic aspirations, whatever they may be, as the environment was 30 years ago. America's diplomatic network is certainly under strain, both from within and without. China and Russia are more capable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, internally, you look at sort of the enduring scourge of racial injustice. You look at growing income and wealth inequality. You look at intensifying political polarization. 
you look at growing political dysfunction and you add up those domestic woes, and, and you were getting at this point now, the difficulty of assuring your friends about the vagaries of domestic politics. I think a lot of, it's not just China and Russia, that China and Russia, of course, engage in a certain measure of schadenfreude when they witness America's domestic challenges. I think that even many of America's well-wishers in Europe and Asia, elsewhere, are looking at America's domestic challenges and saying, one, what is going to happen in 2024? Which administration will take power in 2025? So, one, the vagaries of America's domestic politics necessarily mean that there is now an inbuilt element of uncertainty attached to America's foreign policy, and that uncertainty is no longer a hypothetical, it's a reality, and that uncertainty, I think, necessarily, understandably, informs the calculations of America's allies and partners, number one. And number two, I do think that a lot of America's friends, they look at some of these trends that I've just enumerated, they look at America's mismanagement of the coronavirus pandemic, and they say to themselves, if the United States cannot properly attend to its own, if it can't get its own house in order, if it can't attend properly to its own socioeconomic challenges, if it can't demonstrate anew the resilience of its democratic example, how can it credibly think about mobilizing coalitions to deal with global challenges? And it's important not to conflate. I do believe that there's a strong demand signal for U.S. engagement abroad, certainly in light of a resurgent China, a revanchist Russia. But I do think that a lot of America's friends say, look, you need to demonstrate first that you can get your own house in order before you can credibly harbor pretensions to global leadership. And so we have a lot of work to do internally. We have a lot of work to do externally. Having said all of that, I, I do think that the United States still retains a number of competitive advantages, some of which I think are unique. And again, it's a, it's a familiar litany, but it's worth enumerating nonetheless. So uh, its ecosystem of innovation continues to thrive. Its system of higher education, I think, continues to be the envy of the rest of the world. Its demographic outlook, I think, importantly, visa, certainly vis-a-vis China and Russia, the United States has a much more favorable demographic outlook. It does have an ability to attract individuals from around the world to, to start their lives. I mean, I'm a child of immigrants. My parents were born in Pakistan, so they're immigrants, and they very much are part of that American story. Um, so internally, I think the United States has a number of advantages. I think also importantly, and before turning to sort of external advantages, I also think that one of America's intangible, nebulous competitive advantages, but I think a very compelling one, is it does have this really storied, long-standing ability slash tradition to use internal reckoning as a source of renewal. So if you look at the Cold War, for example, during the Cold War, the United States not only faced a, a barrage of propaganda from the Soviet Union, but the United States faced a lot, I shouldn't say faced, the United States also confronted a lot of activism from within saying, hey, you need to reckon more fully with racial injustice. You do need to do a better job of treating, or you do need to treat racial and ethnic minorities more effectively. And that reckoning with both external criticism, but also internal activism led to landmark Supreme Court decisions such as Brown versus Board of Education, led to landmark pieces of legislation such as the Voting Rights Act. So the United States does have this story capacity to reckon internally with this gap between its foundation creed and its lived reality and to bridge that gap. So I think a number of competitive advantages at home and then externally, I do think that its diplomatic network remains unrivaled. I think its capacity for mobilizing coalitions, it still has the, the world's only reserve currency, it has uh, the only military that can project power into any corner of the world. And that's obviously a very cursory net assessment, but I, I think that we can be cognizant of the very deep challenges that the United States faces at home and abroad. We can be cognizant of the reality that the United States is not in, operating in a 19 1991 geopolitical environment, you know, still be, I think, quietly optimistic. I would certainly rather wake up in the morning and have the kinds of competitive challenges that the United States does versus the ones that China and Russia have. Fair. When you when you started out talking about Russia, and it's, you know, you mentioned, you suggested that they were increasing in influence. I think that that's true for China. I, I think this war, this, this is a last gasp of, of Russia for the time being. I think it's, it's eroded whatever political capital it ever it has had. Soon Europe is going to be far more energy independent than it ever was. 
all the levers that the Russia's going to have are going to be gone. They, they're not going to be able to produce cars or anything else anymore because they don't have the chips. And their military will lost somewhere between 30 and 50% of its capacity. Well, you know, this um, done. Go ahead. This, what you just said, Steve, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think it's very important for the United States in appraising China and Russia. It needs to find, and obviously it's much easier said than done, but to the extent that the United States can restore a sense of strategic equipoise, finding this midway disposition between complacence on the one hand and consternation on the other. So if you look at Russia, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit about China in a bit, but I mean, look at Russia, exactly building on your points. I think that with its invasion of Ukraine, I, I think that Russia has belied this notion of its this narrative of its much vaunted strategic acumen. Now, Russia has Russia has demonstrated with its invasion of Ukraine in a very brutal way that it matters. Russia has demonstrated its enduring influence, and we're seeing how Russia is weaponizing its prodigious energy reserves. We're seeing how it's weaponizing its status as a major player in, in global food markets. So Russia is not a bit-sized player. It is an enduring power. It's a nuclear-armed power. It is a member of the P5. So I think to those who may have said that Russia is is going to be consigned to irrelevance. I think that Russia, in a very brutal way, has offered a rejoinder. And I think we shouldn't overstate Russia's diplomatic isolation. It's not a part of the G7, but if you zoom out to the G20, if you zoom out to the G77, Russia's diplomatic isolation becomes less pronounced. But having, having registered those caveats, I think that Russia has committed a really quite extraordinary act of strategic self-sabotage. I mean, think about the consequences that Russia has incurred and will continue to incur. Russia is now even more beholden to China than it was prior to invading Ukraine. So so long as Vladimir Putin is at the helm of Russia, I, I can't really conceive of any basis for even a minimal detente between Russia and the West. Many of Russia's core relationships in Asia are now strained, particularly its relationships with Japan and South Korea. Those are now much more strained than they were. And even though Russia, right for the time being, is blunting the impact of sanctions, I do think that those sanctions over the medium to long term are going to begin to bite much more, meaning that Russia's medium to long term ability to access capital and technological inputs that will be necessary for its long term economic development, that access will be significantly, will have been significantly curtailed. And so, yes, Russia, you have reminded the rest of the world that you are a major power, you are an enduring power, you've, you've demonstrated how much influence one can wield, one can accrue and one can wield to be a destabilization, but I think a profound cost to your long-term strategic outlook. And so I, I think recognizing that Russia and China, while formidable powers, they're not immune from strategic hubris. They make mistakes, they make grave mistakes in some instances. And so I think that one of the reasons that I believe that there is a great power opportunity for the United States is that its principal competitors, they're not immune from strategic hubris of their own. Okay, uh, we'll get to China in a second, but one thing I want to get back to first is you've mentioned that there's a strategic competition as a prescription, and there's there's clearly something that you want to address in, term, in your book. I, I don't, I'm not sure the listeners of, of Battle of them are, are completely clear. The debate about who's making the argument about strategic competition, what is the strategic competition argument that you're trying to push back against? So, so I would make a, just to reiterate this distinction between you know great power competition as a descriptor versus a prescriptor. So again, descriptively, I don't think the great power competition descriptively captures the totality of contemporary geopolitics, but again, it distills very important drive. One of the first propositions that I set forth in the book is an acknowledgement or rather recognition that great power competition distills important dynamics. I, I think the critique I advance is more on the prescriptor side. So I, and, I, and I try to advance three main uh, critiques of great power competition as a source of prescriptor. Guidance. The first is that I fear the great power competition, almost by definition, it puts the United States in a more reactive defensive mode. And because it is oriented around the decisions that China and Russia make, I think that the United States, if it leans too heavily into great power competition, 
and it's a policy framework, it runs the risk of competing increasingly on the terms that China and Russia dictate. And so the United States is anticipating what is China going to do next? What is Russia going to do next? And then how do we respond? And so you're placing yourself in a reactive frame of mind rather than a proactive one. And I think when you are reactive, you signal anxiety to your allies and partners, and you signal that you perhaps are losing confidence in your own unique competitive advantages and signal perhaps that you're losing confidence in your capacity to achieve strategic clarity and achieve strategic discipline absent a decision, the decisions of your competitors. So I think the first critique is at a time when the United States wants to be projecting equipoise, confidence, temperance, I think the great power competition signals that we are anticipating what China and Russia are going to do, and then we're going to respond. And so it projects a certain reactivity rather than proactivity. Um, the second critique, and I was kind of getting at this with some of my comments just a few a few minutes ago, the second critique I have of great power competition as a policy framework, I think is actually, ironically enough or counterintuitively, it should actually be a source of confidence for the United States. I think the great power competition, it does correct for some of the complacence to which the United States succumbed or some of the triumphalism to which the United States succumbed after the Cold War. But I think it runs a risk of overcorrection. We don't want to understate China and Russia's competitive prospects, but we don't want to aggrandize them either. I, I like Jude Lynch at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has this nice turn of phrase. He's talking about China, but he says, China is not two feet tall, but they're not 10 feet tall. Maybe I, I think he said China is something like six foot nine. I, I, I like that. <laughs> and the idea that, look, China and Russia, they are, again, they're formidable competitors. They are multifaceted competitors, but they're not 10 feet tall. They're not immune from strategic hubris. They do make mistakes. So I, I think the second critique is that with great power competition, we are rightly correcting for the triumphalism that we saw at the end of the Cold War, but perhaps we're overcorrecting. And if we do aggrandize China and Russia's strategic acumen, if we don't sufficiently allow for the reality that China and Russia make competitive mistakes, that they are that they're not immune from strategic hubris, then we're liable to, to fall into the first critique, which is that we design a foreign policy that's too narrowly oriented around responding to what China and Russia are doing. And then the third critique, and this critique, it's unpalatable to, to articulate this critique, especially when you see you see the barbarity that Russia is inflicting upon Ukraine, you see the really dangerous steps that China is taking vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. But the third critique is that great power competition, I think if it's embraced too strongly as a prescriptive framework, it runs the risk of casting cooperative undertakings with China and Russia as fool's errands at best, wow. and perhaps even at worst, as exhibitions of strategic weakness. And just by way of, of talking a little bit about the writing process, I submitted the, the first iteration of this book, the first final iteration of this book, shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine. And then I went to my editor shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine and said, would you permit me to write an afterword? And she very generously agreed. So I, I include an afterword in the book that, that discusses Russia's invasion of Ukraine and offers some initial reflections. When I was writing the afterword, I wanted to see if I could come up with a scenario that I could defend analytically in which the United States could advance its vital national interests solely by aligning with like-minded countries. If I could imagine a scenario in which the United States could essentially just bypass China and Russia and just work with like-minded countries to advance its vital national interests, and I couldn't come up with such a scenario. I just think that China and Russia, if you look at their aggregated military power, economic path, I just think that they're too, they're too large. They loom too large in geopolitics to be bypassed. And so the United States, in order to advance its own vital national interests on the full panoply of the full and familiar panoply of transnational challenges, it will have to preserve some baseline of cooperative space. And I don't say so with any exuberance. Uh, it's going to be very it's going to be very difficult to find that cooperative space. It's going to be very at times nauseating to contemplate that cooperative space in light of the actions that China and Russia are taking. The United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, they cooperated as existential adversaries, not because they harbored any illusions about one another. 
they did so for purely self-interested reasons. So they cooperated on arms control. They cooperated even on uh, polio vaccine research. And so I think that, again, the United States will have to cooperate with China and Russia. And, and, and I should say, and, and then I'll, I'll make this point and then stop, I think that in the present political environment, when we use the words cooperation, interaction, diplomacy, they almost now have pejorative connotations. Uh -huh. I think of those terms as being value neutral. So when you engage or when you when you conduct diplomacy or when you interact, you do so not because you necessarily want to or because you are enamored of your interlocutors. You do so because you have to. For me, the conduct of diplomacy is simply an acknowledgement of reality. We live in a complicated world. We live in a messy world in which there are many countries that don't, don't necessarily share our conceptions of international order, don't necessarily share our, our norms, our aspirations, but you still have to interact with them because of their proportions. And so the third and final critique that I try to set forth is that as unpalatable as it might be to contemplate cooperation with China and Russia, if we abandon cooperation altogether, I fear that America's ability to advance its own vital national interests will suffer. Well, let's get to China. We're doing this interview on August 5th. It's right after Nancy Pelosi's visit. Mm -hmm. And I think this particular visit raises all kinds of issues for the relationship between China and the United States. China has, since Nancy has left, has continued uh, a variety of measures, mostly aimed at Taiwan, not so much in the United States. That have been pretty harsh. They've shot missiles over Taiwan. They used a variety of waters near Taiwan as live fire exercise zones. They've issued a variety of sanctions. And it's all puzzling in part because Nancy Pelosi is not the first congressperson or senator to have visited Taiwan. She's, I guess, technically the most senior speaker of the House. Well, we've had senators do this, and senators are usually high pollutant type folks. And so there's there's two sides of this question, which is, again, your focus more US foreign policy, but first half this is what's up with China. And then the second half of this is Pelosi's visit presented a variety of dilemmas for the Biden administration that could have tried to cut it off. They could have amped things up. They've chose sort of a middle course. How do you feel about Biden's response to this? And was this an, you know, in your phrase, was this an opportunity for the United States to exert confidence? One of the things I've been looking at the last couple of days has been whether this shows more Chinese weakness or strength by their wild overreaction to this. Does it show American strength that they done things like delay having ballistic missile tests that they planned on having this week? Does it show the confidence that you've been talking about, or does it show weakness? So what do you make of the whole Pelosi venture? Sure. So first to your point, you know, Speaker Pelosi is not the first U.S. official to have, to have visited Taiwan. And I think that the way that China has, it's telling that the way that China has responded, it's only deepening its estrangement from advanced industrial democracies and beyond. Now look at the statement that ASEAN, I mean, if you look at the statement that ASEAN recently released, ASEAN conveying its concern about the deterior, deterioration of cross-strait ties. So whatever one I think it's important. Whatever one's opinion of Speaker Pelosi's visit, so leave aside, let, let's hold one's opinion of that visit constant for now. Whatever your opinion might be of Speaker Pelosi's visit, it was up to China how to respond. And China has responded in a very provocative way, in a very destabilizing way, and frankly, in a way that I do think betrays anxiety. And I think it reinforces a lot of the concerns that not only China's immediate neighbors possess, but also concerns that other major powers further afield uh, possess. And so it's interesting, with China's foreign policy in recent 
recent years, I think it reflects this paradoxical combination of confidence on the one hand, but anxiety on the other. So confidence that, yes, our, our meaning China, our Chinese, our, our military capabilities are growing apace, our economic capacity is growing apace, but anxiety that China's external environment is also growing more contested. So what do you see when you look beyond your borders? The Quad, which prior to the coronavirus pandemic was, I think, seen by many observers, myself included, I say this much to my chagrin, but I think that prior to the coronavirus pandemic, the Quad was widely seen as another geopolitical abstraction that was limping along but wouldn't really achieve escape velocity. The Quad is now proceeding with clear momentum. So the Quad has clear momentum. Japan and South Korea, despite deep uh, historically rooted uh, hostility and distrust, they are taking incipient steps towards thawing their relationship. A historically antagonistic relationship or, or strained relationship between Japan and South Korea has historically been one of the major inhibitors of a more sustained U.S. presence in Asia. So if I'm China, I see that the Quad is gaining strength. I see that Japan and South Korea are taking steps to thaw their relationship. I see that the European Union is fundamentally recalibrating its disposition towards me. I see that NATO, with its recent strategic concept is referring to me in unprecedentedly strong language. I see that the United States on a bipartisan basis is taking a dimmer view. And I candidly, leaving aside China, and just thinking from a, from a U.S. perspective, even though it seems that China will in due course possess the world's largest economy, possessing the world's largest economy is not enough to make a power globally preeminent. So just if you look historically, the United States overtook the United Kingdom to become the world's largest economy in the late 19th century. It didn't become the world's foremost power until after World War II. And even then, it became the world's preeminent power by kind of by default, because Europe was devastated, Asia was devastated. But there was a substantial interval between the time when the United States achieved the world's largest economy and when the United States became the world's foremost power. So even if China comes to possess the world's largest economy, if it continues estranging itself from the advanced industrial democratic core, that, while not relatively as preeminent as it was 20 years ago, still does maintain the balance of power. I don't see how China achieves regional hegemony, let alone global hegemony. And so the way that China has responded to Speaker Pelosi's visit, it's only going to deepen its alienation from other major powers, with the exception of Russia. But even that Hong Kong, I think in many ways, is becoming something of a reputational albatross around China's neck. So whatever one's opinion of Speaker Pelosi's visit, China has not done itself any favors with the way that it has responded. So it is only going to, I think, contribute further to its own encirclement. So Australia now is going to invest more in its Australia has just announced that it's undergoing a, or that it's going to conduct a major review of its defense capability. So what are Australia, India, Japan, and South Korea going to do? They're going to all, I would have to imagine, they are all going to significantly boost their indigenous defense capabilities. Taiwan, obviously, for basic reasons, for obvious reasons, is going to bolster its uh, defense capabilities. I think that collaboration between the United States and Taiwan is going to increase, is only going to increase. The Quad is going to increase its military focus. So, so China, with the way that it's responded, I think it hasn't done itself any favors. I think that what it's trying to do is spook the United States. I think likely trying to deter deter further visits by high-ranking U.S. officials. But again, the way that China is comporting itself, it's not winning itself friends. What I think that China is hoping to do, and then I'll stop. I think that China increasingly seems to be reaching too high, or increasingly seems to be rendering two judgments. Judgment number one is that if China can achieve a certain centrality in the global economy. If China can achieve a certain indispensability in global supply chains, perhaps the thinking would go among China's leadership. Perhaps then that China will be able to overwhelm the apprehension that it's engendering among its neighbors and further afield. That's hypothesis one. And I think that hypothesis two, which corresponds to, you know, corresponds to the first hypothesis, is that the United States is perhaps in terminal decline. 
And so, sure, the United States will be able to you know, stitch together certain coalitions to push back against China, but the United States, and that the West more broadly, is in a phase of terminal decline. I think that those hypotheses are premature, but they seem to be driving a lot of China's foreign policy, but I think that they are born of premature assessments, and I think that they're going to prove to be hubristic in retrospect. So you, the second half of the question, which is the American response to this, do you feel that Biden's response was appropriate, what they should have done, they moved some ships nearby, they supported her visit by providing her with potential defense if she needed it. They didn't leave her out. They didn't squash the trip. Did they do the right things? I think so. I mean, I what should the administration have done before Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was confirmed? There's a debate one can have. But then the second part of the debate is once her visit was confirmed, what should the administration have done? And I think that the administration right now is trying to it, it's trying to accomplish two objectives. It, it's trying to basically juxtapose, present itself as the adult in the room. And frankly, it, if you look at the juxtaposition between U.S. conduct right now and, and China's conduct right now, I think that the United States is saying, look, we are going to, as administration officials have said, we're going to sail wherever international law permits us to sail. We're going to make sure that you know we strengthen our defense cooperation with, with Taiwan, that we strengthen our defense cooperation more broadly in Asia, but we're going to try and exercise restraint. And so even though China is engaging in all manner of destabilizing activities right now, I think that the United States is exercising restraint. And I think that the United States is hopeful that by juxtaposing its restraint with China's uh, provocation, that the United States will be able to enlist, I think, greater sort of allied and partnered support for contesting China's influence. But I think that once Speaker Pelosi's visit was confirmed, it would have been irresponsible for the administration not to say that we're going to make sure that she can travel safely. We don't get to dictate the decisions that she makes. It is her autonomous decision. But now that she's made the decision, we are going to provide fully for her defense. We are going to ensure that she can conduct her diplomacy safely, free from harassment, free from coercion, free from intimidation. And now that Speaker Pelosi has, has left Taiwan, to say that we are going to, uh, again, we're not going to escalate the crisis. We're going to exercise restraint, but we also are not going to be intimidated. But I think that the administration has struck a difficult balancing act with a plum. In responding to China, particularly in this moment of acute crisis, America's options are not good, better, and best. They're bad, worse, even worse, and catastrophic. And I think that very often in foreign policy, we I think that there sometimes is a tendency to, fo to focus on this abstract continuum ranging from good to best. But in practice, that continuum really doesn't exist. So the options you have as the United States are, I think your, your least bad option is to exercise restraint vis-a-vis -vis China, but to make clear to China, to Taiwan, to Asia, that you are not going to succumb to intimidation. That's your least bad option. The worst option is to take steps that could lead to military miscalculation or perhaps even an armed confrontation. The title of my book is about a great power opportunity. Well, forget about a great power opportunity or any vestiges of great power cooperation. The most solemn obligation of great power relations, the most foundational, sacrosanct obligation of great power relations is the avoidance of great power war. If you can't avoid great power war, then you fail. And if you can't avoid great power war, then we can forget about a great power opportunity forget about great power cooperation. So we have to focus right now, not only in the very acute phase of this crisis, but further beyond, how do we strengthen military to military communication, which China is temporarily, I hope, is temporarily, not permanently suspended. So how do we restore military to military communication?
communication? How do we restore baseline stability to the U.S.-China relationship? And how do we ensure that before we can think about salvaging cooperation or seizing what I believe to be a great power opportunity for the United States, how do we ensure that the world's two largest militaries and two largest economies don't come to blows? And once we're on a little bit firmer ground that the United States and China appreciate anew the gravity of a nuclear, potentially nuclear armed confrontation, once they have appreciated anew the gravity, or really the sort of the imperative of avoiding that confrontation, then we can talk a little bit more about potential cooperation and the potential for opportunity. That's really helpful. I think the situation we face right now is not as dire, thanks to, to hearing from you. I think the challenges are complex, and China's overreactions here will cause uh, challenges in days ahead. I do think that Russia's missteps are going to make things actually easier for the United States to compete on that front. Finland and Sweden joining NATO.